This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, August 31st. I'm Robert Louie. And I'm Virginia Allen. On today's show, we talk with Helen Raleigh, policy fellow at the Centennial Institute and a senior contributor at The Federalist, about her recent piece breaking down the Israel-United Arab Emirates peace deal and what it may mean for the future of the Middle East. We also discuss China's growing influence on American universities. We also share your letters to the editor and a good news story about a nonprofit that has converted its parking lot into an outdoor learning center and tutoring hub for children who are distance learning this fall. Before we get to today's show, Rob and I want to tell you about an entertaining way to keep up with the news that matters most. The Heritage Foundation YouTube channel features TV interviews with heritage experts, policy explainers, and videos of Heritage's most recent webinars discussing the economy, COVID-19, China, and much, much more. Go ahead and join the 150,000 other subscribers on the Heritage Foundation's YouTube channel today. You can search for the Heritage Foundation on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Heritage Foundation and just hit that subscribe button. You'll stay up to date on the news and information that conservatives need to know. Now stay tuned for today's show coming up next. I am joined by Helen Raleigh, Policy Fellow at the Centennial Institute and a senior contributor at The Federalist. Helen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You recently wrote a piece for The Federalist entitled, What Corporate Media Won't Tell You About Trump's Historic Middle East Peace Deal. And on August 13th, Israel and the United Arab Emirates established diplomatic ties through the Abraham Accord. First, can you just explain what this means that Israel and the United Arab Emirates have established this peace deal and what has actually changed now about their relationship? Thank you for that question. This is a tremendously historical agreement. Uh, this is only the third agreement in Israel's history that Israel has signed with the Arab country. The other two were 1979, Israel had a, signed a diplomatic agreement with Egypt, and in 1994, Israel signed a diplomatic agreement with Jordan. So this one in August is the third one. As we know, there has been a long history of Middle East conflicts, and Israel is surrounded by hostile nations that um, from day one wanted to eliminate Israel from the planet Earth. So the fact that Israel uh, is able to achieve a peace agreement with a Gulf Arab nation, the first Gulf Arab nation, which is the UAE, this August is just a tremendous achievement. So basically this accord will allow Israel and the UAE to exchange ambassadors and establish embassies and also other opportunities for trades, corporations, healthcare, especially join the fight against the COVID pandemic and will allow the two nations to establish transnational flights, and it will set a template, which is really important. This agreement can set a template for Israel to achieve uh, future peace treaties with other Gulf Arab nations. So I cannot under, undermine the historical nature of this peace agreement from Israel and the UAE. And what were the events that led up to the signing of, of this agreement? 
Well, sir, there are a number of factors leading to the signing of this agreement. Uh, one of them is the joint fear and the concern about the menaces by Iran. As we know, Iran never stopped developing its nuclear weapons. Uh, as a matter of fact, this uh, June, Iran successfully tested several cruise missiles, uh, both long range and short range, uh, which shows Iran never abided by the nuclear agreement that sent under the Obama administration with the EU nations. So, and it's this joint concern uh, between uh, both Israel and Arab nations about the growing menaces of uh, Iran, so that's one key factor, right? Your, you know, your enemy's enemy is is your friend, basically the, the, the deal. Another uh, important factor is um, really credit should go to the Trump administration. The Trump administration, um, President Trump and his son-in-law Jared uh, Kushner, they really took a very unconventional approach. As we know, almost every uh, U.S. president in before President Trump have taken on you know, peace negotiation, uh, try to broker peace negotiation between Israel and Arab nations for decades to come. And no one has been successful. So the, the expectation that the Trump administration would be successful is actually very, very low. Um, nobody, nobody thought his administration could have done it. And But, you know, we have a very unconventional president. And yes, Jared Kushner that didn't have a long history of a foreign policy experience, maybe that's actually played to the advantage. So they took an unconventional approach. Last year, the administration rolled out the uh, Middle East peace plan, really took an unconventional approach. Um, for example, they're gonna recognize Jerusalem as the undivided capital for Israel, but at the same time, the administration waiting to offer over 50 billion of economic uh, incentives, aid package for the Palestinians to help them build the economy and promise over a million new jobs for Palestinians. So those are very unconventional approaches. So the peace deal, the administration offer last year really showed the commitment the administration is willing to do and just, you know, unconventional way approach to it. That helps too. And Believe it or not, and, and another factor is the administration has taken a lot of effort to build this so-called Arab NATO, basically building close relationships uh, with several Arab nations, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, to build, uh, you know, build on relationships and corporations in military and technology and economy. And those really help. So those three factors really helped leading to this uh, peace deal. Oh, I, I should also mention that a lot of credit should also go to UAE. Uh, UAE launched a year of tolerance last year. Uh, the government in UAE really reaching out to interface communities, invite, for example, they invite the Pope to speak there. They build a new interface uh, a structure that will host um, representative of from all different religions, including, you know, Judaism. So the UAE has also made a concrete effort towards this. So all these factors combined leads to this historical agreement. So explain just a little bit further how the Trump administration actually got Israel and the UAE to come to the table on this. So the Trump administration, a couple of things. One, the administration shows it meant what it says, right? And it, uh, it committed to declare uh, Jerusalem is Israel's undivided capital. And it's a very bold move. They were heavily criticized, but guess what? US, the Trump administration actually moved the US embassy to 
U.S. embassy to Israel to Jerusalem basically showed the administration meant what it says. And also in this unconventional deal, basically that the Israel have the basically the administration supported Israel to annex the West Bank in exchange for offering Palestinians, you know, fifty billion dollars um, economic aid, and. And then when when the when the UAE stepped in, the UAE ambassador actually wrote an op-ed, basically saying in in Israel's uh, newspaper, basically saying, you know, if you stop the annexation, then there's a you open the door for peace. Then Gerald Kushner jumped in, you know, he really persuaded um, Netanyahu, uh, Israel's prime minister, to say, you know, you need to stop the annexation activity, you know, which Netanyahu did, and that really paved the way for eventually lead to this peace deal. So I think the deal really shows um, the pragmatism from both from all three parties, the UAE, the e- Israel, as well as the U- United States. I think the, uh, the president and his son-in-law, Jerry Kushner's uh, unconventional approach, but also meant what they says, you know, through actions, really helped push to make this deal happen. Well, and you mentioned Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, he's he's not very popular among Israel's media. What has been the Israeli media response to the deal? Oh, it's an understatement to say Netanyahu is not popular with Israel's <laughs> media. He, you know, he, he he's he's amazing. Last year, Israel had three inconclusive elections. He survived all of those, and he was under investigation for bribery and corruption. And everybody thought his political star just you know f- f- just have failed, but he survived. Not only that, Mr. Netanyahu is very committed to Israel's sovereignty annexation of land in West West Bank. This just shows you how much, you know, as a politician, he's also so pragmatic that he's waiting to make such a huge compromise in order to reach peace. So it shows that peace to him is more important than getting getting the land, and he's waiting to take a stand. So the Israel uh, media, which have much more gracious than American media, Israel media, at least gave him some credit. They were really thrilled. They called this deal is like a good atom bomb, a good geopolitical, you know, earthquake. And they just called him, you know, for his brilliant, praised him for his brilliance and a huge breakthrough. So yeah, Israel's media at least gave him credit for what he has done because nobody thought this could happen. But we've seen that the American media has given the Trump administration very, very little credit, which you know I find sad, but frankly, not that surprising. How should the mainstream media be covering this agreement? I think the mainstream media needs to go back to do what the media is supposed to do, is presenting news and the facts objectively, um, because, you know... We, you and I can both agree. I think the mainstream media would agree. Had had this be under a different administration, whether it's Obama administration or Clinton or even George W. Bush, there would be call for giving him Nobel Prize, a Peace Prize for this for this huge deal, a historical deal. But uh, the the media is now joining the resistance that they cannot possibly look at anything objectively. So anything associated with the name Trump. They just have to reject. Uh, I mentioned in my article that even you, you know, for this uh, 
uh, New York Times writer Thomas Friedman that you read his whole piece about this uh, deal that even though he himself called it a huge breakthrough and the entire piece he avoided you can feel his agony he avoided to give any credit to Trump Kushner and Netanyahu so so it, it's just it's pathetic and sad and you know they're not building their own credibility or even strengthening their credibility by a void to be objective present you know a good deal is a good deal and we should acknowledge that even if it's a good deal done by the trump administration you know we, we should accept that and then the media should report that so looking to the future what's next for the middle east could this deal you know, have potential to really impact the direction of the Middle East for years to come? I really think so. You know, of course, the Palestinians rejected the peace deal the Trump administration rolled out last year, you know, outright. And they have been down, they have uh, rejected every single peace deal in the last uh, eight decades. And every time they reject a peace deal, and their situation just got worse. I think this deal between Israel and the UAE basically demonstrate that there is a fatigue among the Arab nations that um, continue to support a uncompromising uh, Palestinians. Um, so they really want the solutions. So um, at the end of my piece, I mentioned that I really think this uh, UAE-Israel peace deal um, is, is set a good template for other deals to come. And there are already signs um, some other nations might be in, in the pipeline. For example, uh, Latin Yahoo visited the Oman in 2018. And then last July, um, the United States hosts a meeting in Washington between Bahrain and Israel. So I think for some nations, they are they're probably going to follow the UAE's lead. Um, I, I think there's going to be more to come. So I want to pivot just for a moment um, and talk about another nation that America is navigating relations with, and that's China. You, uh, you recently wrote a fantastic piece for The Federalist entitled American Universities are now the front line of the China-US Cold War. How is the Chinese Communist Party influencing uh, universities and university students? The Chinese Communist Party, which is synonymous with the Chinese government because it's a one-party state, uh, has relied on three pillars to exert its overseas influence in American universities. Uh, the three pillars are through Confucius Institute, uh, through the Chinese Students and Scholars Association, and through direct financial donations. Uh, just use the Confucius Institute as, as an example. Confucius Institute is really a propaganda machine uh, disguised as a language centers. Uh, basically, the university, whichever university is willing to host the Confucius Institute, all they have to do is just provide the land. Uh, the Chinese government fully funds uh, the buildings, the teaching material, even teachers, and the teachers are heavily vetted from China. And the, their teaching method and what they teach, the teaching content, they strictly follow the uh, Chinese Communist Party's um, uh, talking points. So they only, their goal is, there are multiple goals. They want to present the only positive image um, about the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese history. Their, and their presentation of Chinese history is very selective. And they also avoid um, talking about all the uh, 
what the CCP deemed as a sensitive topics, such as the Cultural Revolution, um, the, the 1989 Tiananmen Square Massacre, the internment of the Uyghurs in the last couple of years, the hu other human rights violation, persecution of the Christians and other religious, you know, re religious groups. So you are. If you enrolled in a, uh, taking classes at the Confucius Institute, you're thinking you're learning about the true uh, history or language culture about China. Instead, you're getting a a selected version or uh, uh, through a rose glance and um, to uh, you know not a full version of what's really happened in China. And so it is very concerning. And uh, it's it's come to a point that uh, schools. Uh, because the schools love those, uh, you, you, American universities love those free deals, right? All they have to do is just provide the land. Everything else is supported by American, uh, by Chinese government. Um, they even self-censored. Uh, for example, I mentioned in my, my piece in North Carolina University that uh, they canceled the appearance of Dalai Lama uh, because the CCP considered Dalai Lama is a traitor. Um, the CCP denied it, you know, uh, has taken uh, Tibet by force. So is this kind of censorship? So the existence of Confucius Institute really hurt our American universities' academic freedom and Americans' free speech. Um, that is why the uh, State Department recently announced it's going to ask Confucius Institute to designate itself as a foreign agent rather than an innocent um, you know, at, you know, language center. So those just one example to show you. It's not a innocent language center. It's actually carry, um, you know, policy uh, objectives for the CCP. So I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding how how these Confucius Institutes end up on college campuses. Essentially, they approach a university and say, mm -hmm. we will give you money in order for us just to use your space on campus and and host these courses, so to speak, and the college oftentimes says, sure, come on. Yes, so basically, yeah, that's exactly what happens. So they will uh, approach uh, uni a university to say, hey, you know, we're gonna offer your students free Chinese language, culture, and history lessons. All you have to do, just give us a space. We will even fund the building. We will provide the teachers. We'll find, we will find the materials. You don't have to do anything. We're going to be fully managed by us. So for a university who, you know, uh, who doesn't want to spend additional money, say, well, this is like, a, you know, pie from the fall from the sky. That's perfect, right? You don't have to pay for anything. And, and also for a while, learning Mandarin is very popular. Uh, among college campuses. So this is like a free deal, free for all. But, you know, it's a really a sugar-coated poison pill. But now America is starting to recognize actually what is going on and is starting mm -hmm. to uh, ask these groups to either leave campuses or, or how, how are they proceeding? So basically, uh, um, there were a couple of organizations like the American Association of University Professors as well as the National Association of Scholars have warned American universities to close down the Confucius Institute on their college campuses. Uh, but many universities did not take their uh, advice until last year uh, under the U.S. National Defense Authorization Act, which includes a special clause basically saying restricting uh, Department of Defense language uh, study fundings if a university hosts a Confucius uh, you know, Institute on campus. So for the schools that uh, wants 
continue to receive Department of Defense's funding for language studies, um, you know, they have to choose, right? Whether they want the fundings for Department of Defense or they want to keep the Confucius Institute. So as a result, money talks. So about 35 American colleges and universities closed the Confucius Institute on their campuses today. Um, but uh, we still have about 80 also Confucius Institutes on American university campuses, and there are also a number of them in K-12 public schools. And are you concerned that those those Confucius Institutes that still exist in America are more or less a national security threat? I, I think so. Uh, unless they change their approach, which I doubt it, because they were fully, all the, all the Confucius Institute are fully founded by the Chinese government and teachers, like I said, teachers are uh, strictly valid. They have to teach what the Chinese government told them to. And so I don't see how they approaching history, uh, how they approaching the truth will change. For the universities to continue to host them, continue to let those institutes spread lies and untrue histories um, about the CCP is basically walk supporting a info warfare. And you know we are the United States and China are engaged in a cold war. We are we're not approaching. We are in a cold war. So part of the cold war is a fighting about ideas and informations. Uh, for the university who's continue host those institute, they're basically taking the sides of the, you know, of the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party's side. And that is very dangerous. Wow. Helen, thank you so much for breaking down these two uh, large topics that are going on in, in the international world, on the international stage for us. We just really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who do you have first? In response to the Problematic Women podcast episode, her leftist college tried to re-educate her. Now she's speaking up. Jerry Curlin writes, great article that I will share with my daughters as I prepare them for college and the culture war. And in response to last week's podcast, This Mom Created an Education Pod, and you can too, Fides writes, this is great news. I have been praying for homeschoolers, especially since COVID started. I imagine something like this with families working together. This is perfect. God bless them. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. So send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? Every day, the Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. Webinar topics range from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, visit heritage.org events. Virginia, as always, you have a good news story to share with us today. Over to you. Thanks so much, Rob. 
A parking lot may not sound like an ideal location for learning, but a Los Angeles nonprofit is making it work in a powerful way. When the Los Angeles Unified School District announced they would be holding school online this fall, the Dream Center, a ministry to the needy located in downtown LA, formed a creative plan to support families and school-aged children. The Dream Center has served the needs of the homeless, poor, and hurting in inner-city LA for over 25 years. I recently spoke with Matthew Barnett, co-founder of the organization, and he said that when parents learned that school will be held online for the first half of the year, many thought their child would not learn at all this fall because they don't have the knowledge or the time to instruct their children since they work during the day. Barnett said, we just began to hear panic in the neighborhoods. Parents saying, I have no idea how to do this. There was just a feeling of giving up. The Dream Center had already been serving thousands of meals every day to children and their families during the pandemic, but they wanted to do more to ensure children could actually learn while parents were at work. The center came up with a creative and out-of-the-box plan to convert a portion of their parking lot, which sits under a solar panel overhang, to an online tutoring center. The outdoor schooling site, known as the Restart Learning Center, provides LA children with a safe place to come and do their online schooling. Tutors are on site to answer questions that the students may have and encourage them to stay focused in their schooling. The Dream Center provides computers to students who don't have a device for online learning, and prizes are awarded every hour to kids who do stay committed to their studies. Barnett described the atmosphere of the Outdoor Learning Center as high-energy Nickelodeon TV show meets education. 20 students and seven tutors arrived on August 18th for the first day of learning under the solar panel overhang. That number grew to 30 students only a week later, and Barnett said he believes there will be as many as 80 to 100 children attending the Restart Learning Center by mid to late September. Some of the students attending have really opened up to Barnett about their own dreams for the future. One young man who's in high school said his dream is to one day attend Duke University. He's sitting out here in an outdoor shed in a parking lot of the Dream Center doing his online work with a vision to go to Duke. Barnett said, and he added, if we could have four months to be a part of his journey to get there, how cool would that be to be a part of his life? His storyline one day will be, my education was maintained because a group of people in downtown LA opened up their parking lot where we could learn and study. Wow, just absolutely incredible. It's wonderful to see how creative uh, organizations, nonprofits, parents, families are becoming in this season to make sure that kids are not falling behind academically. This is just such great news. It is, Virginia, and it really is so important, particularly as parents face that demand of childcare uh, with, uh, with that need to work. So, I mean, the fact that they're coming together with an innovative idea like this is truly uplifting. We hope that other communities will look for opportunities like this as well, and parents will have a place to turn uh, so those kids can continue to gain the experience and knowledge that, uh, that is so important to their, their learning. So we appreciate you bringing us that story today. And we're going to leave it there for the Daily Signal podcast. You can find us on the Ricochet Audio Network and all of the Daily Signal shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. 
And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Female Podcast as part of your Alexa Flash Briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to other listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.